Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode about the book, No Means No, From Obscurity to Oblivion, An Oral History. I am Greg Soden, and I am delighted to welcome the book's author, Jason Lamb. If you haven't ever heard of No Means No, they were unlike any other band in the punk scene they called home. No Means No started in the basement of the family home of brothers Rob and John Wright in 1979. For the next three decades, they would add and then replace a guitar player, sign a record deal with Jello Biafra's Alternative Tentacles record label, and tour the world. The band earned the respect and love of thousands of fans around the world, often who went on to become big rock stars themselves. No Means No From Obscurity to Oblivion is the fully authorized oral and visual history of this highly influential and enigmatic band, which has never been told before now. Author Jason Lamb obtained exclusive access to all four former members and interviewed hundreds of people in their orbit, from managers and roadies to fellow musicians, friends, and family members. The result is their complete story from the band's inception in 1979 until their retirement in 2016. Author Jason Lamb lives in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, and works in broadcasting. And it was working in radio where he first interviewed members of his favorite band, No Means No. That connection helped convince the band to allow Jason access to tell their incredible story in this equally incredible book. I am personally a massive No Means No fan myself, so this book is a huge, huge book for me. If you've never heard of No Means No, this is what they sound like. From Obscurity to Oblivion is available from PM Press, and if you're a fan of rock, hardcore, and punk, this is an essential read for you. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Jason Lamb. Jason Lamb, thank you so much for joining me today. A pleasure to be here, Greg. Thank you. Jason, I am so excited to have you on the podcast to talk about your new book, No Means No. From Obscurity to Oblivion, an Oral History from PM Press. Uh, What a triumph. Um, Jason, why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners out there so they know who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. And uh, yeah, so my name is Jason Lamb. I live in Victoria, BC, Canada, right here on the southern tip of Vancouver Island uh, on the Pacific Ocean. And this is my hometown. um, And uh, I work in radio, actually. I work on a morning show here at a, a station called The Zone at 91.3, which is a pretty popular station in town and up and down the island and even over onto the mainland where Vancouver is. And I've been doing that for 15 years. And uh, during that time and before that, I did stand-up comedy for a bunch of years. Um, and yeah, I've written this book, my first book ever. Um, that's, well, uh, that's pretty much my story. <laughs> were, did you ever have like lifelong ambitions of of writing books? Like, is this something that's kind of like a sort of a pinnacle moment of a long term goal for yourself? 
Yeah, sort of yes and no in a way, because it was never like something that I was adamant that I was going to do or that I thought I w would be able to do. But it was sort of always in the back of my mind as a bucket list thing like, OK, uh, but I'm not a good writer. I, I mean, maybe I'm selling myself a little short because I do write jokes and I've written things. But, um, you know, I never had a great idea for a novel or or some fantastic story that I could, you know, embellish and write a big amazing thing so i i was like oh wouldn't it be great to write a book in my life and leave that behind as a thing but i didn't know what it would be about until i came up with the idea of this uh sort of around 2018 2019 was when it was first kind of bubbling in my brain mm. tell me about uh before we get into the book tell me a little bit about your origin story with no means no because being from victoria is mm. super essential here and i'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about you know take us back in time when you found sure. this band no means no yeah well i mean it's uh it's kind of perfect right because this is my hometown this is their hometown tech you know in a sense they were actually neither of the brothers who started the band were born in victoria but they moved here uh when they were both reasonably young and this is where they stayed and that's where no means no started um, I'm younger than those guys, so I didn't see them at the very beginning of their career. But um, I started getting into punk rock when I was sort of 14-ish or so, 14, 15. It was when I start, you know, first started hearing albums and understanding what it was about, and it really appealed to me right away. Uh, and I think the first, you know, it was just one of those things. It was an all-ages gig. Uh, here's this band, No Means No. They're local. They're supposed to be great. Checked it out and was blown away from you know, from the moment they hit the stage, basically. I'd already seen a couple of gigs before I ever saw No Means No. Um, and it was a weird time then. This is mid-80s, so like 86, I think, is when I saw them the first time. Mm. So Sex Mad had just come out, um, which is their third album. Um, or Yeah, and anyway, um, but they were a local band. And so there was this weird vibe of like, there's this local band that plays quite often in Victoria, but they're fantastic, and everybody should know about them, but they don't and the, and then as the time went on we kept hearing that they were like kind of a big deal overseas in europe and they were starting to get some traction down through the especially through the west coast of the us and but it never felt that they were anything other than a local band to us when i say us i mean victoria punk rock people i guess if mm -hmm. and maybe I'm not, maybe i shouldn't speak for everybody but we were because we were kind of unaware this is pre-internet of course too so we were yeah. unaware just how big of a thing they were in other parts of the world at the time um and yeah i just became a big fan so i got to see them as a three-piece with Andy at least three or four times maybe and then a bunch of times since then I mean every time they came to town I would I would see them I lived in Vancouver for a bunch of years I would see them there I saw them in Kelowna um and up and down the island a few times as well like Nanaimo and stuff so yeah I just became a giant fan that's how that started and I didn't know anything about them other than I bought their records and as you know because you're a fan they were mysterious and weird and you didn't really know much about them and he never even used his real name on the liner notes and um and I, that was a big appeal to me too i just loved how humorous and weird they kind of were beyond the music which was of course fantastic yeah you know i i only got to see no means no two times before their retirement and i was kind of a late comer because mm -hmm. my origin with no means no was very bizarre the first thing i ever heard was the album one so graveyard oh. shift was the first no means no song i ever heard and i was in like bad religion descendants propaganda mode the entire yeah. time so i was not able to connect with no means no because the the entry point was 
flat out the wrong thing for me. Yeah. But years later, I was living in the UK and I was hanging out with my friend, John. And John basically said, wait a second, you don't like Nomi's? And I was like, no, nah, it wasn't for me. And then I told him what I did. And he's like, oh, yeah, kid, wrong come move. On. Yeah. Yeah. So then he yeah. showed me wrong. He showed me zero plus two equals one. He showed me world of the world as such. And um, why do they call me Mr. Happy? So he reintroduced me in the way that was way more fitting with my tastes and my my sensibilities. And then in 2009, I got to see them in the UK and mm -hmm. it was amazing. And then I got to see them a few years later in St. Louis when they were doing those tour EP tours. Um, yeah. So I've only seen them two times, but both times were absolutely magical for me and you know they just grabbed me right away and i just regretted how many opportunities i must have missed over the years not paying attention to them because i had the wrong entry point you know it's i know exactly what you mean it's actually a really common story um one is a really weird one to to, to have as an entry point uh but it's kind of a major bane of no means no fans existences is trying to figure out how to introduce them to people who've never heard of them before or yeah. or, or are curious because it depends on the person a lot because the, the 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 breadth of the styles of music that no means no did over the years is so wide i mean they you know these 12 minute long epic songs well that's going to be way too much for some someone wrong is a great one that people often say you know you should start with wrong but even it's like hard for some people to en enter into so it's very that's a very common story people don't like them the first time because they didn't hear the rest of it you know properly if that makes yeah. sense yeah looking back on it if i would have been shown the songs dad or uh two lips two lungs one tongue there, or yeah. or joy like the beginning yeah. of world of the world or all roads lead to Ausfart. if i would have heard those records or those songs first i would have been immediately hooked but it was just it just didn't yeah. happen that way so yeah. i find it to be really really hilarious um <laughs> let's go to the book here real quick um sure Take me back to 2018, and mm -hmm. I want to hear kind of about your process of how you started to tackle this project, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk a little bit more about the band and the ears of the band specifically. Okay, very good. It really, I guess, was more like 2019. I mean, when I when I said 2018, it was like that was when I, the thought was still it was in my head. 2019 was when I was really starting to think how I would go about it and how this could go. Uh, as a no means no fan, I knew that the chances of getting them to agree to anything like that are almost zero. And mm. I and I'm like, okay, well, but it's worth a shot because I was doing at the time um, a thing called the Punk Show on the Zone, which, uh, the radio station I work at. I was it was just on my own time. I had this little passion project, punk rock show thing. I love doing interviews. Um, I had become friends with a woman named Melanie Kay. And Melanie Kay is in Toronto. She's uh, the Fat Records rep yep. in here in Canada. She founded. I know who the, she is. Um, yeah, you do. Do you know her? Yeah, she yeah. did the Punk Rock Museum with, with Fat Mike and everything. Um, we had become friends over the years because she always hooked me up with great interviews. And I would see her when she came through town. She would invite me out to festivals and stuff. It was awesome. Anyway, I'm like, okay. And she was No Means No's publicist. Mm. Okay. They've already now retired by this point. So we're talking like 2019. But I'm like, She's still technically connected to them. Um, I had already interviewed John Wright and Tom Holliston on the phone on my punk show, just about well, one was because John had his beer coming out, the punk rock beer, and Tom was doing a solo tour. So I had already connected to them on a, on the phone. It was just phone interviews. There was a slight connection, not that these guys would remember me from a hole in the ground. So that <laughs> was, uh, these are the seeds of me trying to figure out the plan of attack, right? So 
I got a hold of Melanie and I said, if I put a proposal together and got it to you, could you get it to the No Means No guys uh, for, for a book idea? And she said, yeah, I could. She goes, but, you know, do not get your hopes up. The, the, the chances are they're either going to just flat out say no or they'll ignore you completely. Um, and that's, you need to be prepared for that. I said, of course, I already know that about them, but I'm going to give this a shot. So I wrote up a, a proposal that I was pretty proud of. I tried to make it funny and no means no, you know, what I was thinking about doing. And I had zero, I had zero content at all. I hadn't done anything to start the book at all. It was just the idea. Uh, I got that to Melanie. And then in the meanwhile, I, um, I spoke to a friend of mine here in Victoria named Scott Henderson. And Scott Henderson is a legend in Victoria. He is a producer, a musician. He was in um, like the show business Giants and uh, Shovelhead and Hiss and All with Andy Kerr. He knew, he knew those No Means No guys from the late 70s, okay? Like he's been friends with them his, since then. Great guy. And at the time, he was a sound guy at uh, a punk venue here in town called Logan's. So I would see him fairly regularly. And I, I took him aside one night and I said, I'm thinking about like, trying to see if I can write a book about no means no. And he's like, oh, okay, well, that's an interesting idea. And I said, you know, I wouldn't do it without their permission. I just wouldn't. They're not the kind of band that I would feel comfortable doing that. I love them too much. And so I just, but he, and so he said, oh, okay, well, you know, let me see you. And to my surprise, he called John Wright and he called Andy Kerr over in Amsterdam and basically told them like, hey, you know, I've got this friend, Jason, um, and he wants to do this book. And if you guys were ever even slightly interested in having something like that happen, then Jason's the guy that would do it the proper way. And I couldn't, I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, that's so nice of you. Thank you. Meanwhile, I, I get the pro, uh, proposal to Melanie. She sent it to John Wright. A few weeks went by. And then it was literally like, I don't know, two or three days before the pandemic hit and everything locked down. Like it was a March 15th here in Canada when, when everything just kind of basically shut down. So this was like maybe the 12th or something. I get this email from John Wright and he says, uh, we got the proposal that you sent uh, through uh, Melanie and I talked to my brother, Rob, and uh, yeah, we're okay with this idea. You know, uh, you can talk to me anytime. Rob says he'll do an interview with you. And uh, he just would wouldn't mind a little bit of uh, editing, um, oversight you know so that you make you make sure that you get the facts correct um and and that was it and that just launched it it was like oh my god i got the green light from these guys so that's the origin story i can keep keep going if you want but it would just snowball from there in the most insane way because go ahead yeah so now yeah. what i want to know is hmm. tell me just kind of what the process was like from there because this isn't just like a a narrative of like you know a straight story this is a an astounding array of who's who in mm. punk rock history telling the story of this band in like a very uh tightly woven like story like throughout the oral history i mean you've got larry livermore from lookout records you've got sure. like kamala parks yeah. Uh, from Maximum Rock and Roll, Brendan Canty from Fugazi, Kim and Matt from Soundgarden, yeah. Skiba from Alkaline Trio, William yeah. from Sunday Real Estate, like Milo, George from yeah. Propaganda, yeah. yeah, like Mike from No Effects. You've got like so many people that were so transformative to my own life as well wow. in this book. Yeah. And just I'm just curious, like what this process was like for you because this is so huge and then the way that you had to go in and find the, the perfect 
tidbits and snippets from those yeah. interviews, which must have been huge to construct it all. I mean, this is like it completely nuts to me. Wow. Thanks, man. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, um, I knew that I needed to talk to, the, you know, the rock starry stuff, like the big, you know, the, the famous people thing was always in the back of my mind. I would love to get some comments from people that are influenced by no means no or like them. And at the time back then I knew of maybe like three or four names in my mind that I'd heard were fans. Right. And then, of course, I had to talk to the band themselves. I had to talk to um, all the people around them, uh, you know, their sound guys, their managers, their family, their friends, their, because I wanted to start, I wanted to keep, I wanted to tell the whole story, sorry, like from, you know, their childhood right till retirement. So I, I just started making lists of who I could talk to and started trying to track them down. Um, and so, yeah, the first interview I did, and it was so kind of, piecemeal or, or random because I basically <laughs> just, uh, you know, through Facebook and emails and website, you know, people's websites or phone numbers I could find, I just started reaching out to everyone. The first interview I did for no particular reason was um, um, Tim Solian of uh, Victim's Family. Mm, um, yeah, great band. Right? And yeah, thank you. And that was a great interview. And then, uh, and I think I interviewed Larry from Victim's Family fairly soon after that. And then basically the order of the interviews just depended on who got back to me and said yes. And I just started scheduling. It worked out so well because I work at a radio station. Maybe I shouldn't say this if my boss is listening. Just kidding. It's fine. But uh, I would, you know, I would get off work or I would come here on a weekend or I'd come here in the night. Um, and I've got access to a production studio to uh, I can record professional audio and I can record these interviews on the phone or Zoom or Skype or whatever. And then with the timing of the COVID thing, which of course was horrible but everybody was home everybody was bored nobody was on yeah. tour nobody was in the studio everybody was just and so everybody was around and almost all of them were willing to talk to me pretty much pretty much everybody and so yeah and they went from there and then i started reaching out to um like fan pages on facebook and no means no fans because one of the first things early on that john wright said to me is he said are you planning to talk to any fans because really they're the ones that matter more than anything so i'm like oh okay and that's when i decided i'm going to intersperse fan stories with the story of no means no yeah um so i think what's what i think is really cool is like some fan from you know minneapolis or something his quote will be right beside kim thale of soundgarden you yeah. know and i thought that was kind of a neat idea and then now that brings me to a very important thing which is uh, a gentleman by the name of paul prescott who actually gets a second credit on the cover, which wasn't originally the intention, but he did so much work, it just had to be that way. He, um, sorry, I need to back up a real, real quick. After I started doing all these interviews, I'm like, oh shit, now I've got to uh, transcribe them. This is a book, not an audio book, right? So I've got to put it down on paper, you know, and put it down on, on a Word doc so I can start cutting it and putting it together. And I realized pretty quickly, this is going to be a massive amount of work because transcribing interviews is a pain in the ass and takes forever, yep. as you know. As I um, know. Yeah. So I reached out to the No Means No community, to my friends, and I said, would anybody help me? Like, you know, I don't have any money or anything, but if you could just help me, if I could send you an interview or two, you know, on your own leisure time, transcribe it for me and send it back to me. Got a great response. Several dozen people, like, no problem. Some of them were, were, wow. were taking on, you know, multiple multiple interviews and one of those guys was paul prescott he he transcribed like a i don't even know what the final number was like 30 or 40 of them Jeez, and yeah and so i started chatting with him on facebook that's how i did a lot of my communications through, through messenger or whatever and 
He said, oh, if you ever want any other help, you know, like I've got a little bit of editing experience and stuff. I'm retired. He lives in Belize. Okay. Mm. He's from, he's from Maine, um, lives in Belize. And we kind of sort of struck up a little bit of an online friendship. And eventually I said, yeah, you know what? Like, um, I'm starting to get this stuff together, but I'm not really sure, you know, I'm, I'm trying to piece it, but I could use another set of eyes or whatever. And I, it was originally, it was very casual. He was going to help me. And that just went, we just got along so well and had the same exact idea of how this was going to go. We ended up working together for hundreds and hundreds of hours. And, uh, you know, I did all the interviews. I did all the research and all the that. But he, as far as putting it together, that flow that you're talking about that I'm really yeah. proud of, where, where I feel like if you took all the people's names out of the book, it, you could almost still read it as a story, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And that yes. a lot of that I attribute to Paul's skill. Um, so yeah, I, am I even answering the question? I'm not sure, but that, so oh Paul, my gosh, yes. was, yeah, was huge with that. And then we just started, you know, and as, so I, as I was putting it together, I was still doing interviews and still collecting <laughs> images, which is a whole other insane thing. Um, at the end of the day, I ended up with 23,000 unique images. Wow. I ended up with like a hundred thousand images of lots of repeats, but I have 23,000 unique images. And that came from everywhere. It came from fans. It came from friends. It came from the band. It came from everywhere. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's basically how it went. And we just kept plugging away at it. Amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. tell me about your. Let's bring in the let's bring in the band themselves. Okay, so you sure. got Tom, mm-hmm. John Wright, yeah, Rob Wright, Andy Kerr. By Tom, I mean Tom Holliston, who was their yeah. second guitar player after Andy left the band. Right. Um, Tell me about your interviews with uh, with the four band members themselves. Sure thing. Okay. Um, so, like I said, I'd already talked to John and Tom in the past, so I, I they sort of knew who I was. Um, and of course, they, you know, John had said yes to the to the project. So I think John was the first person I interviewed for the book. Um, went great. Um, I'll get to Tom in a second, but. Uh, then there's Rob Wright. Okay, so Rob is John's older brother, um, and he, I think most no means no fans would agree, was is the well, John is just as important, of course. The two brothers are the band, really, but Rob is the real creative genius between behind the, especially behind the lyrics and um, and what they were all about. He was his mm-hmm. vision than anything, right? So, uh, and he's an intense guy, and we all kind of know that as fans, seeing them live or just knowing about him. He's a pretty intense dude. <laughs> yeah. Very deep thinking, very, very intelligent guy. And I was so terrified to talk to him, right? I was like, I was intimidated and scared, and I was under the impression I was going to get one interview with him, one phone interview. I'm like, okay, I got to make the best of it. So I did call him first, and and to, he, he only has a landline. He doesn't, like, he doesn't do social media. He doesn't, <laughs> you know, he's, he's not, yeah. So I steeled up my nerves to call him just to introduce myself and then like book a time to have an interview. And within about two or three minutes of talking to him, I was like busting a gut laughing. He's such a funny guy. He was so friendly. He was so uh, gregarious and so, and it's just, it was great. And so we hit it off there. Then we did the interview. And then I I said to him, would it be okay if we did a follow-up at some point, you know, as I go forward? He's like, yeah, sure, we can do that. And it got to the point where I ended up, I think I ended up interviewing Rob nine times on the phone and then I've gone to visit him three times and drank scotch with him and in his backyard. And, and then with John, same thing. Like I, I uh, was not as intimidated by John. 
Um, but I became friends with these guys. It was insane. And and then John invited me to go visit him. He lives up in a small town called Lund, which is up the coast of uh, BC. Um, Rob lives down by Vancouver. But I went and I stayed in John's cabin. He's got a cabin on his property. And he, he took me upstairs to where him and his wife have their bedroom. And there's kind of a lot. It's a beautiful house that he built. And and he started pulling all these boxes out of out of the rafters and it was just original artwork and flyers and hundreds and hundreds of photographs of, of of stuff and posters and like he kept a lot of stuff and i was sitting there going this is like stuff that i fantasized about that this book could become as an experience for me but i didn't actually think it was going to happen yeah is that weird to say that like but it's no. it was yeah Oh my God. And then again, and then same thing with Andy. I was also intimidated by Andy because I didn't know him at all. I had no, never met Andy. Um, and he's overseas. He's over in Amsterdam. Um, so I, you know, added him as a friend on Facebook. He already kind of knew about this thing. So he was okay. And then we started chatting and we became fast friends just through messenger just cause you know, and then eventually I got him on the phone and met him through zoom and, and then he opened up his archive of stuff to me. Like, you know, he's over there. So it was sending me folders of of digital files of photos and stuff. But it was just insane. Um, and then Tom, who is the quirkiest, one of my favorite people in the world, Holliston. Um, same thing. Just started with uh, phone interviews with him. I've stayed at his place, too. He lives up the road from John Wright, quite literally. Uh, so I don't know. It's... it's I, I, I don't want to, like make it sound like I'm bragging or, or anything weird like that. But it was just like, um, it all just came together so well. The timing was perfect. I think that I just caught them all at a time where enough time had gone past from their individual uh, retirements up from the band. Um, you know, Tom was still doing music. John's still doing music. Andy's still doing music. But the, the enough time had passed. There was just a little spark of sentimentality in those guys. And they were like, mm. over to this. And it just went from there. It just went on and on and on. Yeah. Amazing. Um, there's a few different eras that the band mm. goes through that, uh, you know, the book does a really great job of breaking down the eras. And like you even have some sections that are like just like specifically about like one record, you know. Yeah. Um, but I want to know about the different eras of the band because it's like you got the, the two piece era. You've got the Andy Kerr era. You've got. Hanson Brothers, mm -hmm. you've got the Jello Biafra era, right. you've got the Tom era. Tell me a little bit about what you see as kind of like the progression and the different eras of the band that you go through in the book. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, it started with just the two brothers, John and Rob. Um, they were both living at home at the time, 19, you know, and Rob's eight years older than John. So there's quite an age difference there. So Rob was already a young man um, working. He went to, to Alberta for a while and worked. John was still in school, in high school. Um, and John was already a prolific musician. He was just one of these kind of child prodigy guys. He loved, you know, he started drumming when he was quite young. He was in the school band in elementary school and middle school and then into high school. Rob decided he wanted to get into music. He had already discovered punk rock. John had not. Uh, John was into jazz and swing and like, you know, pop rock and stuff. So... Rob sort of saw that his younger brother had this musical talent. Rob wanted to get into it, so he had a guitar. He didn't start with a bass. He started with a guitar. And he went and uh, worked in Alberta, made some money, and they, they bought a four-track recorder. 
and said it to his brother, like, let's record some stuff and screw around and see what happens. And that's what it started. And it was literally in the basement of their parents' home. That's where they where they had their little setup. Uh, took about, I'm trying to, I'm, I want to screw this up, but it was about a year and a half later or so. They actually pooled some money together and put out a single um, called Look Here Come Look Here Come the Wormies. Um, yeah. <laughs> with their, and Rob had a friend named Ray at the time. Ray did his weird song on the other side. And then uh, as no means no, they had Look Here Come the Wormies, which is a very strange song. Um, you know, they just independently produced it. I think they made four or 500 copies of it and, you know, basically gave them to friends or sold them at uh, shows and stuff. Uh, they didn't play live for a while either. They were quite hesitant about that. Um, I'm not going to give away something because I do want people to, because I know this is going to surprise a lot of people. So there's another thing. Sorry, yeah. that, I don't mean to be vague booking here, but uh, <laughs> uh, there, yeah, there's another thing in there. But um, yeah, and they were only really doing the two-piece thing for about like less than three years, sort of, at, maybe maybe three years from when they were recording to when they did some shows. And the shows they did as a two-piece were um, mostly in Victoria. They did get over to Vancouver a, a few times as a two-piece. Um, and then the next era was when Andy Kerr joined as a guitar player. And Andy was already in a band called The Infamous Scientists, um, which John also drummed in for a while. I, it's It was so hard, and I hope, I hope that you, since you've read it, I hope it makes sense, because it was so hard to uh, get across the incestuous musical scene in Victoria back then. Yeah. How everybody was in each other's bands. Everybody was already friends. You know, one thing that blew my mind is Tom Holliston knew those guys way back years and years before he ever joined the band. Yeah, right? he was like roommates with Andy for a long time too, roommates right? Roommates with Andy. I mean, roommates with Andy. It's, it's insane. Um, so, and the way that came about is basically they just thought, uh, or Rob thought, we need to we need to fill out the sound more. We need a guitar player. And Rob obviously was now playing bass. Um, they already knew Andy. Andy was hesitant, but eventually joined. And that's when things started to really ramp up. And they, you know, finally did a cross Canada tour. And then they started uh, dipping down in the States. And then eventually they got overseas and became a big deal. Um, so there's, am I, yeah, I'm covering that okay. So two piece, then Andy. I mean, there's yeah. so much more in there, of course, which is all in the book. Um, I know. And then Andy left for various reasons, um, mainly because he was moving to Amsterdam. Um, and he was just kind of a little bit done with being on the road all the time and, and wasn't really that interested in being so popular in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they were back to a two piece again for a brief moment. And they put out an album called Why Do They Call Me Mr. Happy, which my favorite one. I think it's my favorite one, too. Amazing. Um, I've gone back and forth and uh, it wasn't early on. Like when it was out, I didn't even really pay attention to it, to be honest with you. But as I've um obviously dived into the world more i think it's my favorite one too and it's actually their favorite one too it's the right yeah. brothers record both of them um, the river and kill everyone now yeah Un right. unstoppable that's all you need that's all you need yeah uh and then and then they're like well we can't we're not going back to a two-piece there's because it's too much of our music has got guitar in it we can't you know we can do one album sure while we wait to figure it out and then tom was already in the scene he was already a guy they knew that play they played with another band bands and so they invited him and again he was hesitant because it, I mean, it was a pretty daunting prospect to join a band like that and uh but tom did and practiced the songs and they started taking him on the road and that lasted for another 24 years so i mean tom was in there more than twice as long as andy was andy was in the band for about for less than a decade about a decade 
And then, yeah, and then Tom and I for 20, 23, 24 years. And then they uh, they called it quits. What is your favorite Andy era record? I have to say, and it's a lot of it is just because of my, like the experience of it was the first album that I actually purchased of theirs. And um, yeah, well, I get, it, it's hard, but Small Parts, Isolated and Destroyed is my favorite Andy album. Although, I mean, wrong, you can't, but yeah, Small Parts. Well, we'll talk about wrong in a second. What okay. is your, what's your favorite Tom era? No means no record. Dance of the Headless Bourgeoisie. Ooh, interesting. I, I know. And that's not a common answer, but uh, no. that, that album has really grown on me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't, I have never yet to connect with that record. So I'm actually really excited by that record because like, I don't really connect with it, but I know that someday I will. And I just am excited for that day because it's almost like an untapped, no means no entryway yeah. for me. You know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you mean. It's kind of cool. Uh, I'm kind of jealous of you in a way because I, <laughs> I, I don't have any more records that I haven't dived into yet. Um, first of all, play the song, The World Wasn't Built in a Day. Put the headphones on, listen to it on YouTube if you have to, whatever. Um, and then and then go, okay. And then dive into Dance of the Headless Bourgeoisie. Um, but I know exactly what you mean. Um, it's an exciting feeling when you're like, oh, that album is sitting there and I have never really given it a proper chance yet, but I bet you I'm going to love it eventually. It might take a couple of listens. Yeah. Tell me I actually really, I really love Mama too, uh, which was the, the first full length, the only full length they did as a, just a two piece. Tell mm -hmm. me about, uh, you know, Wrong is a record which is pivotal and seminal in punk rock history. Just Absolutely. flat out within punk and hardcore wrong is one of those uh, records that just transcends the genre in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about how you have come to see this record because it's given a massive place of importance within the book. Mm -hmm. uh, it's discussed widely in the interviews yeah. that you did. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you see wrong as like a, a thing. I have a vivid memory of the first time I heard wrong because I was already quite a big no means no fan by then. I, 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 I bought, you know, I had small parts. I had sex mad. Um, I think I probably had you kill me by then too. And I was a fan I was seeing them whenever I could. And so I knew that wrong was coming out. I knew that the, that no means no was coming out with a new album. I bought it as soon as it came out. I might've actually bought it at one of their gigs. Um, and I was with some friends at this weird guy's apartment who I didn't know very well. And, we put it on and I won't get into details, but we were in an altered state, quite an altered <laughs> state of uh, consciousness and vividity and um, listen to this fucking record. And it, 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 it was mind blowing at the time. And like, I, 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 and I was a huge fan of it then. Um, I even, I bought a shirt. I had a wrong t-shirt, an original one. And then someone stole it from me at some point, which would piss me off. But uh, yeah, it was the album and that was, be you know, and then of course what it did, later and became such a entrenched legend it's you know it, um and this is even mentioned in the book by by a couple of people like it's almost not cool to like wrong if you're a real like t tried and true no means no fan because that's the you know that's the one that everyone talks about but that's stupid because it's an amazing record um i i won't say i'm bored of it at all that's a terrible way but I, the other ones I, are still fresher to me i think because i maybe i over listened to the wrong it doesn't mean that I don't put it on sometimes. I still do. I mean, there's certain songs on there that I will love listening to still. Does, is that making sense? It, it, I, so totally. wrong, is, wrong is held up as this absolute classic for 
100% the right reasons because it is from beginning to end incredible and different. Um, and I was part of it when it came out. I felt that. You know, you, you hear from all these, uh, you know, baby boomers the first time they heard Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and then, oh, yeah. drop acid. And it was, uh, that, that, that was like what it was for me. But since then, I've gotten more into some of their other stuff. Yeah. Nice. We've got a, there's a, there's a large amount of no means no uh, adjacent music too. We've got mm. show business giants. We've yes. got. Andy Kerr's uh, record, Once Bitten, Twice Removed. We've right. got the band Two Pin Din. Yep. We've got the Rob Wright solo stuff. We've got John Wright's new band, Dead Bob, which is named yep. after some artwork from uh, the old No Means No, You Kill Me record. Yeah, Tell me about some of your, uh, your favorite No Means No adjacent world Ooh. stuff that, uh, they, you know, people, if they're looking to branch out, that they can that they can also check out that they might not even know exists. Yeah, well, some of it's hard to find, right? And and uh, yeah, well, great great question. Um, you know, I really do like the Dead Bob record a lot, and it's great. Uh, and John's coming to Victoria and and some places around here on the island of Vancouver um, in later November. I'm going to go see three of the shows. I can't wait. It's because I know he's going to play some No Means No tunes for sure. Uh, and that is like a super group in a lot of ways. You know up here it's ford pier uh who's an amazing i saw artist. ford pier live yeah. with no means no yeah he opened for them tons of times like did whole tours with them and yeah did do you like ford pier like yeah, yes um and byron slack from the invasives is in dead bob um uh, Kristen from a band called wrong there's a band called r-o-n-g from vancouver they're a female really great band um i think inspired by wrong that's why they call themselves that but they, they don't do no means no stuff but their own their own thing she's in the band um who am i missing oh and colin mccray from pigment vehicle which was another um victoria band that was uh quite a big deal in these parts uh back in the 90s so i can't wait it's gonna be great uh, so dead bob um the mr wrong cassette called from my heart to you which uh is a rob wright's alter ego uh, again, really hard to find, but if you can find it, I'm sure it's on YouTube or something by now. There's, it's so cool. It's like really interesting music. But also, I really do like. I mean, I, I don't. I don't want to leave anyone out because I love it all. But Andy Wise, um, I mean, the early, the really early stuff, the Infamous Scientists is really cool. And I actually really loved what he did with Scott Henderson, which is Hiss and All. Uh, they put out two albums. Uh, came out on Alternative Tentacles actually. That was uh, that was fairly soon after Andy had left. No means no. And then Tom um, is so quirky and fun. Showbiz's Giants. <laughs> I used to find it a bit of an uphill climb getting into that stuff because it's so, some of it's just so weird. But now that I've appreciate, I'm not a musician myself, but now that I have been in this industry, I guess, for a long enough time, I appreciate good musicianship better than I used to. And so when I listen to Showbiz's Giants now or even Tom's solo stuff, um, I realize how good it is and how, how cool it is, even, if, even when it's funny and weird. Amazing. Yeah. I remember I remember stumbling across the uh one down and two to go, uh Mr. Right, Mr. Wrong compilation album in a yeah. used CD bin one time. Blew my yeah. mind finding that thing for $5.99. Yeah, that's actually a really cool album too. And it's a really weird one because it yeah, it was it's like there's new stuff on there and new meaning 92 or 93 when it came out, 92, I think. Um there's some new stuff that they recorded. There's some really old stuff that they pulled out of the basement. 
Then there's a Swell Prod song on there, which is Scott Henderson's weird band doing a cover of a No Means No song called Real Love that is sped up and very strange. There's even a Hanson Brothers song on there where they do a Kinks cover of Victoria, which is all about this city with different lyrics. It's really hilarious and what a wonderful song. Yeah, One Down and Two to Go is an interesting one for sure. There's some great songs on there and also some kind of inaccessible songs for some people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Man, um, something else that really jumps out in the book is the way that the band was uh, kind of visionary in the stuff around music as well. Like, I know that they did some illegal shows in, like, parts of the world where you're, like, not really supposed to go. And I know they would do, like, weird things like photo shoots where they're, like, playing Scrabble with old people. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. what are some, like neat weird little things that kind of sets this band apart from uh from others like in their time period i think a lot of things set them apart actually and i don't i don't even think they were they were a lot some of it was intentional but i think a lot of it was just that the way those guys were and they just did it and looking back it's like oh yeah that was so different and kind of ahead of its time maybe or something um it was important to all those guys especially earlier on um that it was about the music. It wasn't about being a rock star. It wasn't about look at us. So that's why they rarely appeared in their own promo shots or on album covers, or if they did, it would be like they'd mix the names up on purpose or they'd, you know, to be distorted or be wearing, you know, wearing a cow mask or, or or dressed up as a gorilla and all that kind of stuff. Um, And that wasn't the case with a lot of bands, including punk bands who, you know, do have integrity and do have um, something to say, but, a lot of people still want to be rock stars. And these guys truly didn't. They just were like, the music speaks for itself. So that was really cool. When they first went over to Europe in 1988, um, just out of necessity um, and, you know, affordability, they hooked up with a company called Concurrent uh, in Amsterdam. So they played a lot of squats. And that was, that was this, there was a whole squat touring system through europe at the time through western europe and that got them uh they didn't go to poland the first tour but then you know then the next time they went over they got invited to oh come to poland they were one of the first western bands to western punk bands to play in poland um you mentioned before we started the interview about the east berlin thing they played in east berlin they had to walk across the border without their instruments and play illegally in a church base a church basement where the people that were putting the show on could have gone to prison for having them play Hmm. Um, why they did that? Because <laughs> it's cool, and it opened up uh, doors, it made a lot of fans, and it gave them a huge amount of respect. I think in those in those communities, because truly early on, um, especially with the two piece stuff, and even some of the other, they were such they weren't a hardcore band, but they lived in the hardcore world, and it was by luck, really, that that kind of happened. Because if they didn't do that, there's a great quote in the book from um, from Ford Pier about they could have easily become one of these art house type bands that was were also doing things in the early 80s, you know, where people are, you know, small crowds and people really serious about the you know, And you can only go f- so far in that and then you just become this thing. But somehow they got embraced. Not, not somehow, it was on purpose, but also it just worked. They got embraced by the punk and hardcore community fairly early on. And that's what enabled them to get such a big, wider reach. Mm. I think that's, am I answering that question? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, and there's uh, so many other quirky things about them. I mean, they they're they have ugh, all four of those guys have high high integrity as individuals uh, about how to treat other human beings, about how to treat fans, about about uh, the music, about where they stand on things. Um, they're all super nice guys. Like they're just they they're real. There's not yeah. there's not an air of anything shitty about any of those guys. Truly. You know, and you mentioned like the fans several times, and you're not the only person who feels this strongly about this band. Like I'm thinking about Jordan and Matthew oh. and Michelle over at the No Means No Thing podcast, where they're doing like a breakdown of the entire discography in in podcast form. Like, tell me about yeah. like the community that you Insane. have like that you have like found yourself immersed in while doing this book because you're super engaged with other super fans. You know, honestly. I didn't expect it to be as intense as it was and still is. Um, shout out to a Facebook group called We're So Right, We're Wrong, which has got 10,000 members now. Really active Facebook group that almost never has shitty people on there saying shitty things or talking about politics or, you know, vaccinations and stuff. It's, it's, it's true fans. As I was getting into this and going forward with it and reaching out to people and asking for fan stories, um, I got everything from <laughs> funny stories to really sad, tragic stories that involved friends that had died that were like so into no means no. And I learned pretty quick that they're a very unique band. There's not too many bands out there. There's lots of bands out there that have tons of fans. Foo Fighters have tons of fans. No means no fans. Um, it's like, you know what it reminds me of? And this is sorry to kind of pause for a second. I'm no, it's fine. Of, it reminds me of uh, a quote from the stand-up comedian Stephen Wright. Okay, you remember, you know, the, the, the monotone, mm -hmm. I'm Stephen Wright. Um, <laughs> he was interviewed once, and I don't know why this stuck in my head. He said, when you're a stand-up comedian and you meet another stand-up comedian, you immediately, before you even start talking, you immediately have about 30 things in common with that person. I find that no means no fans are the same way. Like if you meet somebody who's into no means no, you automatically know that you're probably going to get along with that person. You're probably going to have the same types of ideals. I mean, not with everything, of course, but you'll probably have the same types of thoughts about the world, about philosophy, about politics, maybe, or, or not even that. So, and that's unusual. I think if you put, if you put 50 Foo Fighters fans in a room, how many of them would bond and become friends if you put 50 no means no fans in a room i would say the majority of them probably would yeah does that make sense and like you're an example the other interviews i've done are an example michelle matthew and jordan are an example mm -hmm. paul prescott is an example i've connected with people and become friends with them even if i've never actually physically met them um because no means no fans are cool people <laughs> yeah i i couldn't agree more yeah um Okay, so let's kind of bring this uh, this in for a landing a little bit. Um, tell sure. me about the retirement yeah. of No Means No, and like kind of like what the what their world has been like since 2015 mm. when sure. they retired up until up until the present day. Sure. Uh, well, really, the decision to retire was Rob's. Okay, Rob had uh, started a family. I remember he's older than everybody, so he was starting to get a little tired, a little bit weary and wary not wary weary of the road and all that stuff um so he pulled the trigger basically and uh so they retired um tom continued with um solo stuff uh wherever he could book solo shows um 
just Tom Holliston. You know, sometimes he would tour with uh, Selena Martin or friends and, and do that, put out some records, um, mostly on like CD. And uh, John um, moved to, he'd already moved actually by the, by the time they retired. But John lives up in Lund. He bought, he built his own house. And he got remarried. And in 20, <laughs> the timing was so bad. In 2019, he bought a pub Mm. Um, it used to be called the Red Lion, and then he bought it uh, with some other people um, in Powell River, which is right near Lund, uh, and turned it into the Wildwood Pub. Amazing place, really beautiful in there. Um, John's a big fan of beer. He brews his own beer, and he's very good at it. Um, this never became a brew pub, so he didn't brew his own beer at the pub, but they brought in really nice beers and served really good food. Uh, unfortunately, the COVID pandemic um, you know, it was, it, it would open, you know, they had to close down then they would reopen and close down and just the timing was just shitty. And, uh, yeah. so it had to close down permanently at this point. I think there's chatter about trying to see if they can do something, but at this point it's for sale and, uh, he's on other things like dead Bob, which is amazing. So now John never stopped doing music either. Um, but he wasn't that serious about it. He was kind of sort of, um, keeping his fingers in it a little bit but the pub made him the pub kept him very busy so but he did compressor head which is uh where he hooked up with these german engineers who built robots who literally play music like not digitally they are robots that physically move and strum guitars and hit drums and it's crazy it's crazy. And the guys that did that, these German guys, um were big no means no fans so they managed to convince John to do some vocals and uh, they put out an album uh, that went defunct because the robots broke up for real. Basically, it was the German guys had a falling out. But I, I think that's being res resurrected as well. I'm not, I don't know a whole lot what's going on with them. Uh, Rob. Rob is the one who really retired. Uh, Rob just became a family man. He wanted to be he wanted to be there for his kids, watch his kids grow up. Um, he lives in suburban splendor. He golfs when the weather's nice. Uh, he gardens, I think he, he hangs out with his kids and his lovely wife and is enjoying that. He does still play music though, but not for anybody. He, he, he told me he's been writing some like jazzy, not jazzy, but uh, bluesy stuff on guitar. Um, he was trading Bitcoin for a while. He got really into that. I don't know <laughs> if he's doing that or not. Um, and then Andy, of course, so that's going, Andy, left much, much earlier, but Andy moved to Amsterdam uh, to, and and married Ingrid, his wife, and they had a kid, and he's really happy there. I think he works in computer programming, like coding type stuff, and he still does music too. Two Pinned In is, it would be his most recent project, and that's with a guy named uh, uh, Wilf. Um, am I getting that right? Yes, of course, yeah. Um, but he, and he still loves playing music and does it probably every day, but he's not that interested in doing big tours and stuff. They'll play shows in Amsterdam. Maybe they'll do a couple of other towns around Holland, um, or De Netherlands, I should say. He's from Victoria. So he comes here, uh, when there's not a pandemic going on, he comes here usually every year to visit and he'll often pop up and do a little show somewhere. So is, yeah, that's about it. That's where they're at. So they're all alive. They're all Healthy-ish. Is <laughs> uh, Tom, Tom is on tour right now. Uh, I know. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then John is is got a little BC tour for Dead Bob right now, but he wants to expand that. I think he wants to go down to the states and across Canada and all that stuff too. Yeah. Is uh is Rob singing on the Dead Bob record too? 
That's that's you're not the first person who's asked me that. No. Interesting. It yeah. sounds so much like him. I know. So this is I don't think I'm giving away anything. No, I well, I'm not. Um again, just with this crazy journey this has all been. I've heard a lot of that record like 2 years ago because uh, I when I would visit John, he he's got a he's got a studio set up in his garage um with his dusty old drum kit and everything and he played me some of this stuff uh, when it was, you know, kind of still rough or whatever. Uh, you're probably talking about a particular song called White Stone Eyes, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, And that actually is a no means no song. So that was a song. Um, when those two tour EPs came out, uh, there was actually three EPs they consider because they also consider that remix, uh, the weird thing because Rob was into that electronic music. Yeah. They considered that their third EP. They wanted to do a fourth one and they never got to it. And White Stone Eyes was a song that I, I'm pretty sure Rob Wright wrote. Um, definitely the lyrics for probably the music or, or collaborated with John. They never recorded it. Okay. Maybe they may have demoed it or something, but they never recorded it. Uh, John took that, obviously ran it by Rob and re-recorded it. And I believe uh, the ver- first version I heard, I think he, he did bass um, just on his keyboards. I think maybe on the album it's... It's Colin, but I could be wrong. Anyway, and that's John singing, but purposefully trying to sound like his brother. Interesting. Best way, best way to describe that. Yeah. It, it it blew my mind. It blows my mind to hear you say that because I thought it was Rob and it sounds just enough different where I was like, oh, maybe this is just Rob's voice like eight years after not singing in a band. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. how the human yeah. voice changes over time yeah. as you age. I was like, oh, maybe Rob just sounds a tiny bit different now. Um, but I totally thought that was Rob. So he, he pulled one over on me for sure. Well, let me say this too, honestly, like that's what John told me. No means no, or the kind of band, even with me and my access and their honesty with me, maybe this is one little nugget they didn't want to share with me. Maybe Rob is on there. Who knows? Keep the mystery a little bit alive. Right. Amazing. Um, okay. Well, Jason, what a fabulous conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm so delighted that we got to do this. Um, the book is coming out. On PM Press in yeah. January 2024. So we got a couple months to go. Yeah. Tell me about your plan between now and the release date, and then maybe after the release date. What can people expect? Great question. I don't. I don't really know much. Um, they have not given me a specific date, but I actually believe, at least in North America, I believe you are probably going to be able to have it in your hands before Christmas, and maybe in Europe not till the New Year. Um, but that's honestly kind of a guess. Like, they, you know, it's this is all new to me, too. Um, they'll tell me as they know. Uh, obviously, I'm expected to do a lot of promo along with it, which I'm, you know, this is something I'm doing right now, having an interview with you. And I've done a few of those already. Uh, in the new year, um, nothing is actually concretely planned, um, but they're going to want me to do, I'm sure that we it'll be maybe up to me to help book something in Victoria as maybe I would, I mean, I would love to do a book launch party and invite those guys and maybe even have a live music night and, you know, try to get some of the, um, you know, get the Daigle abortions and the Alice donut or something. I have these, again, I have these fantastical things, oh. which are so ridiculous, but every time I've had these, they've t- turned into reality. So I'll, I might as well just shoot for the moon, but yeah. none of that's, none of that's planned yet. They're also going to want me to come down to the States, um, probably just the Western U S ish. 
Um, only because that's no one's no you're in Buffalo. No one's no did, did fine, but they were never quite a, a big deal on the east coast of the U.S. like they were on the west coast. Well, they were alternative tentacles band as well, so that makes a lot there of sense go. to me. It makes sense. Um, there was talk about getting me down for punk rock bowling in Vegas. Uh, I think that I might end up doing something at the punk rock museum in Vegas as well. Uh, Melanie, um, who, who I mentioned earlier, runs that basically with Fat Mike and um. Who knows? The sky's the limit, you know? Uh, we'll see what happens. So I couldn't... Yeah, I don't have a lot of details. Sorry, there's nothing booked uh, other than they've just said, hey, you know, the Kickstarter is going. It's nearly... It's I think it ends tomorrow. and uh, But that's fine. You can still get the pre-order the book anywhere. Uh, let me just say to anybody listening, if, if this is interesting to you, call your local new bookseller, bookstore, or wherever you live, and order it in. They'll get it. Um, it's insanely exciting. I, I love this part of it, you know? I mean, I knew it was going to be fun. But I'm also... I'm going to miss the work. I really am. It was so much fun to do. And even when it was stressful and I was tearing my hair out and things were going wrong, I still, the experience was unlike anything I've ever, ever, ever been through. And so uh, it's going to be kind of a sad day when it's out and, and the promo is done and it's just now I go back to what, you know, maybe I'll write yeah. another book. Well, I yeah. mean, you definitely should consider doing uh, another book in the future if another idea springs up to you, because doing that oral history storytelling, these are the kinds of books that for some reason grab me so much. Sure. Like there's Thank a you. recent uh, emo um, oral history book that came out about like the mid 2000s emo scene, like My Chemical Romance and uh, stuff like that. And then mm -hmm. there is a oral history recently that I read about the Winnipeg underground rock scene from 1990 to 2001. Yeah, you and interviewed then, the guy from that, right? The I guy did. That did that. I want to read that too. That, 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 that looks interesting to me. It's yeah. so good because it talks about that whole propaganda, uh, malfaction, meat rack, weaker thans uh, scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like Red Fisher and Band from Atlantis and all these amazing Winnipeg bands. So this oral history format, so interesting to me. And as a person who does podcasts and loves life stories, oral history just works for me. So I hope that another, uh, I hope that another, you know, inspiration will strike you in the future. I, I love oral histories too. They're my favorite type of book if they're done right. Uh, some of them are not done great and they're kind of clunky and they throw you off the story. But when they're done well, they're my favorite type of biography as well. Mine became an oral history out of complete necessity for A, I'm a terrible writer. B, there was just too much to, you couldn't write it as a narrative written thing. You need to have everybody that was there because there were so many people there. Um, so yeah. saying that is like, I really thank you, man. That's really nice of you to say. Yeah. Well, Jason Lamb, author of No Means No, From Obscurity to Oblivion, an Oral History, coming out soon on PM Press. Thank you, man. What a, hey. what a thrill. As a, some, a, as a fan myself, this is just something to be just massively celebrated. And the fact that I get to do this with you means the yeah. world to me. So thank you so much for being here. Dude, an absolute pleasure. Really great to meet you, Greg. And uh, you know, I'll come visit you in Buffalo, maybe in the summer when it's not snowing.